So Mark 14 verses 1 to 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Well, this is a funny little story, isn't it? Um, I'll confess, I've always struggled to visualise it. For a long time I've had this mental image with this one of the woman coming in with a great big amphora of perfume and sort of cracking it on his head. And I don't think that's what happened. I think that would have been a different story. But what, what is going on here? It's a weird little snippet. Why is it here at this crucial point? It drops in and it, it seems almost extraneous. Just in between two obviously important chunks. There's Jesus' confrontation with and rejection of the temple and the priesthood in chapters 11 to 13. And then in the rest of 14 and on to chapter 16, there's Last Supper, Crucifixion, Resurrection. It's big headline things. Why this funny little snippet? Is it just a bit of light relief? Is it just here as the reward to the woman so that she does get spoken of? What's going on? Needless to say, I, I think there's more to it. Otherwise, I'd be stopping here. We'd have a two-minute, 55-second sermon. Wishful thinking. I, I, think, I think what we've got here is a picture for us of worship and rejection. Do you see the way that Mark sets up the contrast? In terms of plot development, he could have just jumped from verse 2 to verse 10. The priests want to kill Jesus. Judas offers to tell him. But instead, we get a little picture, this simple insight into the working of Jesus in a circle to, to cast against them. Here they are, they're at Bethany. They're at Simon the leper's house. They've been staying there a few days. They're at table. Maybe they've just finished the evening meal. And one of the women of the household, who's been waiting on them, comes in with this small white stone jar. In John's Gospel, we're told it's about a pint. It's probably not crude, it's probably ornate, decorative, carved, because it contains fine perfume. 
It cost the equivalent of thousands of pounds, more than a year's wages. It might have been a family heirloom, or maybe it was part of a dowry, or planned for that, or a particularly significant gift to the family. The jar would have been sealed round with wax for freshness, and perhaps as well so that you could open it up, use a little bit, and then seal it again. Use it sparingly, because it contains nard. Nard's a fine perfume. It, it was probably grown in the heights of the Himalayas and then imported across the continent. Like saffron, nard was used as a flavouring in food sometimes, but you use it sparingly. It's expensive. It's special. It was one of the scents that was used in the temple to worship God. It was special for special occasions. But she doesn't break the seal. She cracks the jar. It's irrevocable. And so the house is filled with this rich, sweet, spicy scent. And she proceeds to pour this precious oil onto Jesus' head. And she rubs it in. She washes him in it. This scent, it'll cling to him for days. It's resonant of the way in the Old Testament the kings were crowned. They would be anointed with oil on their head. But this is so lavish. It's more than an emperor might get. It's like having a bath in the finest perfume that Duty Free's got to offer. And so some of those presents say, What are you doing, woman? Are you mad? How wasteful. I, I can really see where they're coming from because I, I struggle with a bit of a miserly streak. Ruth, my wife, is much more generous. Her instinct is to give good things out to people, to share them. Mine is to hoard them for special occasions. And what that really means is that I want them reserved for me. But our, our hospitality and our generosity say things about us and what we think of our guests, don't they? If you've got friends that you see a lot and spend a lot of time with, then when they pop over to your house or you to theirs, you may just share simple food with them. Beans on toast or a jacket potato or pasta bolognese, rock and roll. But think, when, when someone's in town that you love and respect but haven't seen for years, or someone is leaving, you know they'll be gone for a long time. That's when you push the boat out. You buy the best ingredients. You get out that nice bottle someone gave you a while back and you've been saving it for a good occasion. You express affection through generous hospitality. And this woman, well, she worships Jesus. She expresses that in her hospitality. Mark keeps her anonymous, more of that later. But, but glancing into John chapter 12, we get to see that this is Mary. This is the town where Mary, Martha and Lazarus live. This family, they know Jesus well. They know firsthand what his power is like. He raised Lazarus. She knows Jesus has been talking about his death 
and his departure. Everyone there knows that he's put the priests back up. They're out to get him. And so this woman knows that they don't have long with him. He's leaving town one way or another. And so she gets out the most expensive thing she has. And she gives it over to him completely. She shows him the kind of hospitality that she might show a visiting monarch who deigned to step into her humble abode. Because to her, the the value of a half pint of perfume is nothing beside the value of Jesus. In fact, it, it only finds value in him. She worships him. Do the others? Well, some of them don't yet, do they? Their love hasn't kindled in the same way. They they haven't seen what they've got. And so they're shocked to see this valuable oil. It, It could have been put to other pious practical uses, getting thrown away. And Judas, what does he value? It's a picture of worship and rejection. So let's just compare and contrast those. The first thing to notice, I think, is that both could be done by anyone. So even the disciples, even Judas, one of the twelve, even those bigwigs, they could betray Jesus. But on the flip side, See that Mark's really careful in that he doesn't name the woman. She's not important. She's not a central character. She's not a bigwig. She's she's not even a man. That was important then. Mark's often really careful to show, I think, that it's the little people, the insignificant, the, the women, the poor, the sick, they're more faithful, more closely aligned to Jesus, more in tune than... Some of the bigwigs. And so here he has this unnamed woman worshipping Jesus in such a way that it echoes through the centuries. Anyone can. Well, so too can you or I. Second, see how personal and emotional it is. There is something very loving and very intimate about this woman's anointing Jesus. It's, it's born of affection, of deep emotion. And by comparison, the, the rejection is also personal and full of emotion. In verse 5, they rebuke her harshly. They're indignant. It's the same kind of language that's used when Jesus gets annoyed with the disciples for stopping children coming to him. Or his indignance at at leprosy. They rebuke her harshly. And it's after Jesus has stepped in And so, after Judas himself has been taken down a peg, that with ruffled feathers he goes and sells Jesus. Surely that's born of hurt, jealousy, and, and not just greed. I guess it's easy for 
a lot of us, I, I know myself, to, to be academic in our approach to the gospel. We're, we're good at thinking through, if this, then that. Do we deliberately engage emotionally as well? Worshipping Jesus and knowing him is personal, it's emotional. Sometimes that's the strength of music. Emotional muppets like me need that to, to help lead us through what's going on there. Or singing, or imagery, or ritual acts like communion. The things that help us to feel through and process the personal relationship of worship. It's personal and emotional. Well, well, thirdly, that this worship is weirdly impractical. Does that strike you? We're very busy doers a lot of the time, I think. But what does this achieve? The objection that Judas and some of the others come up with is really good, isn't it? She could have sold this stuff and fed hundreds of poor people. Wouldn't that do credit to the gospel? Wouldn't that be better? Actually, though, the, the sensible, practical suggestion they make is a cover for the fact that what they value is the monetary worth of a vial of smelly oil. And so Jesus says, yes, you, you could care for the poor. That's a good thing. Do that any time you like. But there's something more precious here. This woman's act of worship, it's, it's offensively unworldly. Her priorities look alien. Her behaviour seems insane. That's why they're indignant. But it's because her Lord is more valuable to her than anything else. It's impractical and unworldly because her priorities are unworldly. Pleasingly though, Jesus is sovereign and, and, and so he uses that impractical weird behaviour to the glory of the gospel. Her model of worship is, is informing believers 2,000 years later. That's a win. By contrast, the, the much more practically sensible suggestion of the other disciples, that's put on the shelf for another time. Nice idea, later. Ironically, even, even Judas' rejection, his betrayal, his setting out deliberately on a different path, even that turns out to serve Christ's purposes. We do worship in service, of course. And practical displays of love and care for the poor and needy. Of, of course that's worship. And of course it, it's worship to, to do the cleaning or to set out chairs. And, and all or pack chairs away at the end, do you remember that one? That, that's all important. But it's not the ultimate thing. The value of our worship is never defined by the practical outcome. It's about the heart attitude. Any practical outcome, that, that's going to be entirely down to Christ's sovereign power. Fourthly, I think most obviously, that the woman's act of worship here is lavish, isn't it? Nothing is held back. The jar is broken. It can't be resealed or stoppered back up. It, it's poured out to honour Jesus. And by contrast, 
Judas, he's held back. He's grabbed hold of something of value in the world. Maybe it was the wealth. Maybe it was safety as the priests were out to kill them. Maybe it was the idea of his status within the group as Jesus approves of this ridiculous woman over him, one of the twelve. But ultimately he's held back. And so his rejection knowingly hands Jesus over to his enemies as he takes hold of the promise of the world. Whereas the worship anoints him as king. And as she does that, she recognises his purposes. In verse 8, he's bound for burial. He's told them that often enough. Unlike some of his audience, she's got it. She recognises his purpose. She honours him for it. So, what can we say to each other from this? Look at what Jesus says to her in verse 6. It's lovely. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. You can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What a high accolade. Wouldn't you love to hear something like that? How can we worship Jesus like this? We don't have him physically here to honour and culturally I'd suggest that pouring perfume on him not such a hot move now but don't you want to? How can we worship him like this? How can we see this kind of approval? A couple of questions just to think through for yourself over the course of this week. First, what would it look like for you To live in a way that imitated this woman's devotion. To to figuratively break the jar, pour out complete devotion with nothing held back. It's not necessarily practical answers. It's not necessarily about doing more. Rather, how in tune are your heart desires and aspirations with Christ's? How in tune are your your dreams with his purposes? Where do your affections lie? The way that she worshipped Jesus, it was completely in line with his mission. What would that look like for you? Would it mean praying for change in the way that we think about our friends? Maybe letting go of injured pride, longing to be gentle, quick to forgive. Would it mean working at our language and the way that we speak so that others would see that we honour the Lord? Would it mean reviewing our giving, our approach to charity, joyfully supporting the things that we reckon Jesus loves? Would it mean being ready to behave in ways that the world will see as foolish 
as with this woman. Maybe that's choice of career direction or being open about our faith in the workplace, or or stepping back from gossip, or or knowing that while others think us absurd, for whatever it is, Christ will be pleased. Does it simply mean spending more time each day in prayer and Bible reading so that we would know him better? What would it look like for you to anoint Jesus in your life, for, for you to give treasure over to him? Second question, I think it's just the flip side of the same thing. Where do you risk being like Judas? See, he's not a pantomime bad guy. They couldn't tell. He was one of the twelve. He was an active, involved, impressive disciple. He must have shown plenty of devotion. Plenty of affection for Jesus. He he even betrayed him with a kiss. But for whatever reason, whether it's money or safety or injured pride, who knows, Judas chose rejection rather than worship. What keeps your love of Jesus lukewarm? Stops it kindling like this. What is it that sparks resentment or keeps you from wholehearted worship? What things there do do we need to bring before the Lord and surrender and ask him to help us let go of? Where, Where do you figuratively guard the seal on your heart so that you only give out what you can afford? This worship breaks the jar. It anoints Jesus unreservedly. There's just one more thing I want to say. The, the timing of this passage is important. It's not just slotted in because this is when it happens, in between two important things. Verse 1 says, this is two days before Passover. And so Jesus goes to the cross with the remnants of this oil still in his hair and still on his skin. He's not kidding in verse 8. This is preparing him for burial. That's not gloomy. Embalming spices, they were intended for corpses. But if you just cast your eyes ahead to chapter 16, you see that when some women come to anoint his corpse, their plan is foiled. It's the living Lord Jesus who's anointed. Because marking him as a king is the same as marking him for burial. In a couple of days' time, it's at the cross that his plan comes to fruition. It's at the cross that his kingly credentials are confirmed. And he submits himself utterly to his father's will. Even to death. It's just after describing that in Philippians 2 verse 9, we get, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. True worship points to the cross because that's where we see Christ confirmed as King and astoundingly that's where we see our model to imitate. It's at the cross that Jesus makes himself like a servant and anoints his people. This woman is just a picture of that. His body is broken unreservedly. And he washes his people with blood that's more precious than fine incense. He marks them as his. They're marked for burial, so like him, dead to the world. But marked as kings, and so like him, co-heirs of the Father's glory. In a little while we'll, we'll take communion, and we'll remember that, and we'll worship. Before that, we've got a time of singing. Let's remember this and pour out our hearts in praise to the Anointed One, the God who invites and equips His people for worship and who washes them clean.